Hi, everybody. This is Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And this is Nasima Diane Deemer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. Change has come. You know, that's one thing about psychology. We talk about change. People who come to us in distress are looking for change. Please take away my depression. Please take away my anxiety. Please take away my trauma. Please take away so much. What about change to the whole country? We've had a whole change in our country in one week. And we wondered, is it worthwhile or is it even relevant for us as a mental health show to talk about change that's come to our country and politics? We don't take any political position here on The Positive Mind But we do take a position on feelings, and we're wondering, how are you feeling? How are you feeling this week? You're bound to be feeling something. Change has come. One thing about change is it will make you feel something. Leading up to change will make you feel something, too. How are you feeling? We thought we would check in with you, see if you're taking in how you yourself are feeling. Might you be feeling two things? I'm feeling happy, but also a little sad, or I'm feeling excited, but also a little numb. I'm feeling worried, but also, you know, um, hopeful, you know. Um, You can be feeling a number of things at once, and we thought we would check in with you. How are you feeling this week? And is it relevant for a mental health show to talk about politics, let's say, Talk about change. Like, what is the zeitgeist of a country? And how healthy is a country when um, you want to evaluate its mental health? Certainly, Nazi Germany in the 40s, in the 30s rather, could not be really a very healthy country. It'd be worthwhile for therapists, counselors, mental health specialists to talk about what's going on in the country. We're going to talk really about having a couple of feelings at once at this time of year, every four years. It made me think of fathers and mothers and parents. Can you love your kid and also not like your kid? (laughs) Can you love being a parent and not like being a parent? You know, can you belong to a political organization and not like candidates in your or you know political orientation what is that what's going on with that when you have a couple of feelings at once well it's it's a dilemma there there can be a dilemma involved and and a and a certain it really depends on the person like some people can hold two contrary thoughts at the same time and some people can't And it can, you know, set up something called like a dynamic tension in your system. Like you really care about both viewpoints, um, but and you can't sort of land on either side. And you can sometimes feel paralyzed by this, or you can feel, you know, kind of expanded by it. There's there's many ways to approach this, and and that word ambivalence seemed to make a lot of sense right now. Because there have been a lot of big changes, and ambivalence is kind of a result of a need to change, 
and not quite knowing how to do that sometimes. Well, it's about attention. You have a tension, a conflict in your system. I have two feelings, and the, the human mind and body does not want two thoughts at once. It does not want two feelings at once. There is naturally creates a tension. So, you know, I'm a parent. Do I love being a parent? Would I do it? Would I do it again? There's a good question. Maybe we should talk about regrets as well. But I mean, would I do it again? There's a question. You know, and you know, what do you do with that? I mean, you know. You love being a parent, and then you hate being a parent. You hate weekends. I love being a parent on Mondays or Wednesdays, <laughs> but, you know, not on the weekends because my whole life is taken up by my children and me being a parent. It would make sense. Are you allowing yourself to feel both things? I think the trouble becomes in mental health when people, they don't allow the negative feeling they might be feeling. That might be underneath, let's say, some of their irritability, some of their anger, some of their indecision, some of their anxiety, that this ambivalence, these feeling two different things at one time and not being able to talk about it and having to settle it and figure it out and do it all by myself. I can't admit that I don't love being a parent. Who would I tell that to? Would I tell it to my wife or my husband? Would I tell it to my girlfriends? I mean, or... You know, you know, the other parents that are doing so well and seeming to adjust so well to being parents, who do you go to when you are a parent and you're not necessarily loving the job? Yeah, and I think that sort of speaks to a cultural imperative that you're supposed to love having children. You know, people come up against a lot of, you know, mental and emotional strife in parenting, and that seems to bump up right against that thing, you know, that we're not, you know, June Cleaver, the happy, you know, couple mm. in TV land that seem to be able to work everything out in half an hour. Well, now we have a, a TV show called Shameless, which shows a, 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 <laughs> a very different, which shows a very different kind of family. <laughs> but you're, you're framing it really nicely because is it relevant to be talking about, let's say, politics in a certain context? Is it relevant to be talking about America's ethos regarding parenting and being a parent and being part of a family. Are you allowed to show that you might not really love being a parent all the time? I think now more than ever, parents are more allowed to show this. It's like you said, with shows like Shameless, with other, you know, I I just kind of feel like the whole zeitgeist, you spoke about the zeitgeist of a country, there is more choice now than ever. And with all that choice, there can be a huge sort of backlash of how it used to be. You know, it's like as new things come out, as new, you know, ways of being, new couplings, new, you know, ways of having family, yes. you know, all these different, it can be multiple identities, multiple you can identities, be born different sexualities, right. mm. all those things. Right. You know, uh, there are so many choices now, a everything's possible. And that can be terrifying to some people who are who really kind of want to have the simple life that used to be where, you know, a man married a woman and you married in your same faith That's and right. in your same race. And that was just how it was or your same sort of social strata. Right. That's just how things stayed orderly. You got the job in the factory and that's what you did for your whole life and they would take care of you. And things seem simple. Yes. And now everything's very complicated. 
And right. very different. And we get to see how complicated it is, you know? But when I was growing up, we had five TV channels, right? And so yeah. we did get reinforced with this idea that life isn't too complicated. There aren't so many choices. There are, you know, it can be very simple. So the simple life is enjoyable. Pick that. You know, yeah. that could be the the result of those five stations. Yeah. Now there was- there's there's 500 stations. And like everything, there's good and bad to it, right? You can spend your whole life in front of a TV. It It does create an awareness that I get to pick so many different things. I get to, and that can be a burden. The mind doesn't like it. It doesn't want it. So we're, we're going to be talking about ambivalence today. Ambi meaning two, and valence meaning feeling. Two feelings, not two thoughts, right? This is, ambivalence is something in your body, not necessarily your mind. You know, in your mind, we would call it cognitive dissonance when, when your behavior and your beliefs are, are at war with each other. But with ambivalence, we're talking about feelings, something in your body. I'm feeling pulled in two directions. My body is being pulled in two directions. And I feel tension because of it. And I don't like tension, right? I have enough tension in my life. I don't want tension. I want it to be simple. Can't I just love my kids? Can't I just love my husband and wife and my community? Can't I love my car, etc.? I have a funny story about being pulled in two directions. When I was maybe in first grade, I had two friends, but they didn't like each other. Okay. And there was a day when one was pulling on one arm and the other was pulling on the other. Talk about being an ambivalent person. <laughs> I couldn't How decide. How did you feel? Did you side with one or the I other? I couldn't. I just couldn't. Mm. It was like heartbreaking because I liked both of them in their own ways, and but they did not like each other uh-huh. at all. Sure. And they wanted to split me apart. Mm. You know. It was, Who do I pick? That's I a mean, good. That's a good example. Yeah. By the way, here's a, a little something. Who do you think, like parents and parents of all? gone on record as being ambivalent in this one study about ambivalent parenting. Mothers and fathers, who were they, if they have a mixture of children, like who would the fathers be more ambivalent about, the girls or the boys? So I'm going to guess that they would be ambivalent about the boys. Mm, Good guess. Why do you think? Well, probably because, you know, boys are like them. They're little mini-me's, you know? Mm. And and I can imagine fathers would feel like, okay, well, this is a little mini-me, but he's not being like a mini-me. Like, I love him because he's my son, but he's not living up to my standards or he's not doing things the way I want him to do. He's different to me. Yeah. So he wasn't like see- me as I was a kid. He doesn't play sports the way I played sports. He, yeah. he doesn't like the things in school that I liked in school. And that and that and that makes him scared. That makes the father doubtful. Like, wow, yes, I love my son, but I'm also scared. Yeah, and and I could sort of feel how it would mean that as a father, I would have to really kind of expand my mind about who I am and who my son is and the potentials. Great opportunity here. That's right, because ambivalence can be an opportunity. I think you're highlighting this when you can identify the ambivalence, the two directions you're going in. It's an opportunity to really stop and ask myself, what are the conflicting thoughts and feelings? What does this say about me? How can I expand because of these two things? If you didn't have it, it'd be very simple. 
you would just love your son 100% and that would be it. And everything my son does is perfect. And how many fathers are out there who do that, right? Think my son, hey, my son can't do anything wrong, especially not compared to your son. So the ambivalence is an opportunity. No, my son's a good son, but he's also like not so compliant and so good in a lot of areas. I'm a realist. I have my feet on the ground. I'm not you know, blind like that other father over there, you know? Yeah. And so you've gotten it right. It is true. And then mothers, and, and, and so let's say fathers love their daughters 100%, right? You can't compromise a father's love for their daughters. Yeah, and there might be kind of a, a hands-off kind of approach. Like, there's nothing I can do to influence her as a father because she's a girl and there's it's a totally different world and I can just love her for being the girl or the right. young woman she now, is. Now, mothers, but mothers, who are mothers more ambivalent about? Well, I think that's clear right. about their daughters. Yes. Same reason. Right. right? They're reflections. They're the same sex. They're a reflection of me. And, of course, I want to put my best face on everything that's done, including my children. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about some other examples, right? I mean, let's say you are... Um, trying to lose weight all right i want to lose weight i have a poor self you know i see my body and yet <laughs> i love food i love i want to have i want to keep having steak every night or something like that is that ambivalence yeah the ambivalence is you know i want to lose weight but i love my food right so when i'm faced with the food and maybe this is more cognitive dissonant when i'm actually faced with the moment and the temptation of having the piece of cake, you know, I have the drama of remembering, oh, wait a second, I'm trying to lose weight. So, And that does not feel good. You know, it doesn't feel good to say no to that piece of cake. When You know, it's like, I'm trying to hold to a goal. I love cake, but I'm not going to lose weight if I keep eating cake like that. You know, right. it just... It's it that's tough, and a cognitive dissonance would be, oh, I can eat this cake. It's not going right. to be a You're problem. Violate, yeah. I'll I'll right. work out more tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's a cognitive dissonance. So drinking when you're drinking alcohol and you're saying I don't want to drink anymore, uh, but I love what it does to me, you know, or I right. Don't, I well, don't. well, that would be more like I I hate what it does to me, but I but I love it because it makes me great in social situations. I feel good right when I'm in it, but the next morning I feel really terrible. Right. So. So I'm a, I'm a Republican, but I, I don't like the candidate that won, the Republican that won in my district. So I'm a Republican, but I don't like the, the guy who won, even though he represents my values. And it might be visceral. It might be I really don't like, or vice versa with Democrat. I don't like that person. Right. These two feelings... We're having to, and every time that Republican Democrat comes on the air, you see them on television, it raises that visceral response again. Oh, I don't like this party, but I love my party. So, so I'm having two feelings. Well, this might also come up within families. I love my sister, but she's uh, from the opposite party. Mm. That can set up a lot of tension in you. It's like, okay, well, then, of course, like a lot of families have decided to just not talk politics. Correct. But underneath, there's a real dynamic tension. Like, how could this person be following this group, you know, or doing, you know, this makes no sense to me. But they could be thinking the same thing on the other side. And I wonder, kids aren't ambivalent. 
I think ambivalence grows as you get older. Like you would think, like two siblings that disagree on politics, you know, they they would go their separate ways as they get older because of their preferences, whatever they might be. Bridging the gap. Yes, I still love my brother. I love my sister. But boy, they think totally different. They feel totally different than I do about things. Do I really love my brother or sister when they think such different things, especially if I've lost contact with them? Why why should I even say, yes, I love my brother and sister because they think so differently than me and I've lost contact with them? Yeah. It's complicated. We want to say here that ambivalence is is a natural thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it's... Okay, although it gets a bad rap because we all like, especially as a culture, people that are decisive, people that are, you know, very focused, the succeeders. We, we keep our eyes on those that are succeeding and they seem to be single-minded. When you're ambivalent, you're not single-minded. So I think ambivalence gets a bad rap. But it's also, you know, we all can't be like the stars and the and the leading candidate and and the winner of the race and everything most of us aren't those are exceptions and they have those developmental and other reasons why they've achieved the level that they've achieved we want to say that ambivalence is an opportunity an opening a chance for you to for each of us each person to become aware of all the potentials that are available and that so when you make a decision, it's a real decision. It's a decision between competing impulses and competing feelings. Whereas, you know, if you're just guided from age 5 to 50 or 5 to 90 um, and your whole script is written in advance, um, you might not have the chance to be creative and come up with multiple, multiple decisions every day. All your decisions are taken care of because you've picked this one track. So we're saying maybe that's an old paradigm, right? With all the choices that are available, maybe a single focus and, you know, a very simple feeling world is outdated, is outmoded. So we even allowing now couples, let's take couples. What has happened in coupledom and in, in relationships you know, each relationship is so different. I, there's no standard of what a relationship's supposed to be. You know, there used to be. There used to be, right? I mean, it was written. <laughs> like I said, yeah, it's, it's, there have been really cultural standards throughout history as to what, you know, marriage couple or committed couple is supposed to be and look like and how they're supposed to do it. And, and that's all changing everything's, you know, getting mixed up. And that's, I think, evolution. I think it's evolutionary. We weren't meant to all stay in one lane, you know, necessarily. And so it's, it's a challenge, though, to the old guard, right? The old guard is standing for this, you know, singular idea. And the new guard is saying, hey, there's there are so many more options. Right. And people, and this is the good thing, are making more demands on their love lives, on what they want in their relationships. And they're not getting it. They're speaking up about it. They're not going 10, 20, 30 years swallowing their disappointment, their differences. And this is a great, great thing. So I think a revolution is going on in coupledom, 
in couples re, uh, relationships. And that's a good thing. Every couple is different. There's no two couples that are the same and no two individuals are the same. So imagine trying to make two couples the same. <laughs> but it used to be. It used to be. And so ambivalence used to not be tolerated in relationships, right? What happened when a man was ambivalent about his commitment in, in the 1950s and before that? What, what was... It was like just not permissive, permissible. Um, now, you know, a man doesn't have to, you know, many men are, are owning up to, I don't know what a healthy, normal, good relationship looks like. I need help. And, I'm, you know, I'm creating it as I go. You can't expect me to know. You know, the model of my father and his, his wife, my mother, that's gone. I, so this revolution is this creativity because of ambivalence. And I think there's been culturally, at least Western culture, so much pressure on men to know what they want, to be able to decide, to not be complicated, to, you know, see a, a woman, meet a woman and say, this is the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. And it's, you know, it's kind of bereft. I mean, first of all, and in a way, culturally, women were allowed to be more ambivalent than men. Like, they didn't have to decide on a career path. They didn't have to even decide about childbearing. That's right. Now there's a choice. Right. Now there's a choice. It's a intense choice for women to decide. You know, and like that will also maybe help them choose their partner. Like, you know, it's like if I don't want to have a child, I want to be with a partner who doesn't have a child because otherwise that's going to set up all kinds of ambivalence in our yeah. in our relationship. So, you know, it's it's not an easy decision for anyone to make on either side. And and I think it's actually kind of wonderful that also just the roles are changing and 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 there is pain with these changing roles. You know, it's like we want it to be simple, but it's just not simple. And it is complex. And each person is complex. And if we can breathe a little, find our ground, know who we are individually, maybe we can start talking. The example of a first-rate mind is the ability to hold two competing thoughts in your mind at once. Who said that? F. Scott Fitzgerald. F. Scott Fitzgerald, back in the 20s. So we're a hundred years from that, and now we're realizing, yes, he had something there. The ability to hold two competing impulses and watch them and see them and then let them help you expand is the sign of a first-rate intelligence. Yeah. Right? So what about your job? I mean, everybody is working careers, and I love my – I love I, I love the payment I get. I love my yeah. salary. <laughs> but I don't love – there's so many things I don't like yeah. about my job. And so this can develop and develop until a point of decision-making comes. And this is what where ambivalence becomes problematic and difficult. Because a lot of people, we put up with ambivalence. We put up with, you know, the contradictions. And we go along and we handle them and it's part of life. You know, everything's a mixed bag. But when it becomes critical – when it becomes like, I love my salad, but I can't go to this job any longer. Then, now we have to talk about ambivalence in a different way. First, what do we what do we need to do? Well, we need to do pros and cons. We need to really sit down and I think feel the feelings of each side, and and 
to take your time, especially with big decisions like that, like a job, a relationship, either beginning or ending, you know, or committing to a relationship. Um, any big decisions in life need some time. Uh, if you're making decisions quickly, you're often making them from some sort of impulse to avoid the feelings of those decisions. Because usually a decision means I'm choosing one thing and I'm not choosing another. But you're usually in a bind when you don't even feel entitled to airing out the differences. I have three kids. I'm sending them to college. I, I put up with this job for 20 years now. My salary's really peaked. And yet I, I can't do another day. How do you tolerate that? I can't talk to anybody about this because I still have two kids to put through college. What am, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, it's kind of like I don't even want to entertain the thought of not being able to meet my commitments to my children to putting them. Th- it's like I don't, I don't even want to entertain that thought. But guess what? Sometimes entertaining that thought and those feelings gives you a little more space to hold them both. Because maybe the change doesn't happen now, and we just have to find some way to feel enough space to get through the years you need to get through. You know, you make, it makes me think, like, you say, let's say you talk with somebody and say, I'm not leaving my husband. I'm not going to leave. I'm not leaving my high-paying job. But I need to talk about it. Yeah. I, I just need to get out my feelings about it. And it might take me a couple of times or a week or a month, but I need to flesh out where I'm at with what I've been putting myself through, what I've been doing. So I think that would be like one of the first steps is to give yourself the permission to talk about your ambivalence. And then to, like you say, weigh the pros and the cons. Notice what you're missing out on. Really give yourself full reign to look at what you're missing out on. And then... Notice what you're, you're able to keep, what the good aspect of this might be. We're going to talk more about some, some treatments, some ideas on how to handle ambivalence in the second half, in the second half hour. Um, but let's close up with this change that's come. Where are you at, folks? How are you feeling this week? I'm sure you're feeling. You know, that's one thing about the change of guard. You notice that it's a week of feeling. You will be feeling. Maybe for a month or two months or longer. I mean, it seemed like maybe 2020, our feelings got dulled down because we, we were with ourselves most of the time. We weren't exchanging and interaction, interacting so much with people. And so our feelings might have just gone underground. But now they might be resurfacing. If we kind of look back over the last maybe 20 years in our politics, we've been swinging this pendulum sort of back and forth. And I think these last two swings were pretty extreme. And so, yeah, we're seeing an ambivalent United States, (laughs) you know, it's still one country, but boy, it's got some big swings inside of it. And that can set up a real kind of dynamic tension in every single citizen in some way. Because the opposite is right there, right next to you. Yes. And it's a growing, growing moment. It'd be dull if we were getting the same thing with a different candidate, just the same kind of thing. So it's, we're, you know, we're living in such a dynamic country. So And a dynamic time. And a dynamic time. Um, so holding these tensions in ourselves is a good thing. Noticing our feelings 
is a good thing and, and how they might be at odds with each other. Nothing's going to happen. They're only feelings. You know, I'm having these feelings. I'm worried. Many people are worried. Many people are excited. Many are scared. You know, many are jubilant. Many are doubtful. You know, we're feeling so many different things. Many people are feeling many different things. They're only feelings. It's okay. It will be okay. This is The Positive Mind, and I am Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane-Demer. And we'll be back after this break. And we are back. The Positive Mind. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. And we're talking about ambivalence. Ambi, double, two, valence, feeling, two feelings at once. And how, you know, and how do you manage that? And is that a good thing? Right? I mean, getting complicated, becoming a complicated human being is a good thing. Right? I mean, imagine if you weren't you know, in the middle of two competing forces ever in your life. You know, I think that's one thing that people who admire other people, like they admire, they seem to have only just one focus, one thing. They're not struggling against two forces, or at least that's what we see. We see that in the media. We see that the, the, their conflicts, their difficulties are never really shown. And sometimes people who succeed and do very well don't have competing forces. Going, But most of us have this ambivalence, two feelings at once. I mean, uncertainty in life is kind of the rule. There is nothing really certain. Even if you're a child prodigy playing piano, you know, like, and that's your thing. I mean, that's just your thing. That's what you do. There's always going to be some uncertainty to that. I mean, you could wake up one day and you've been injured. Life is uncertain. So having the capacity to hold two things at once, two opposing things at once, is going to help you be a little more resilient yeah. in life and, and to be with uncertainty. But, you know, you're making me think about how does this all start? Imagine having parents that won't allow you to have ambivalence. You know, you're going to study the piano and you're going to become a concert pianist and you don't have any say about it, <laughs> you know, almost like that. Or you're going to be, a, you know, the greatest tennis player or you're going to be a chess player. Or you, and you, so you never get a chance to really feel your ambivalence, your two feelings, because the authorities, the people in charge are telling you, no, you're not allowed to have that feeling. Yeah. Get away from that. So I think we should talk a little bit about pathological ambivalence. 
you know, we were talking about couples and how there's a revolution going on in couples and coupledom here, especially, you know, um, and that's a great thing. It's a really good thing. People are being very creative about how they connect with each other, what kind of lives they want to live with each other, how they want to be authentic and real and true with each other. Yeah, so that, that revolution's all very good. Yeah, they're being creative with their lives together and, and how they're raising families. And and I don't think there should be anything wrong in it as long as everybody's, you know, healthy and somewhat happy. And isn't it great to see a couple that's really in love 5, 10, 15 years later? How did they do it? Because it doesn't just happen. People who are in couplehood know it doesn't just happen. Couples take work. It takes work to be in a couple and to survive in 15 years and be out together and look happy still is, is an achievement, you know? And so this is really like the breeding ground for ambivalence, a place where these people have dealt with, obviously their ambivalence. They've dealt with the culture norms and their creativity, their own individual creativity and have found a way. But I want to talk a little bit about um, pathological ambivalence, because in couples, when somebody is like not fully in the relationship, that's the kind of pathological or toxic ambivalence. And no matter what century you're living in, what age you're living in, people can't tolerate that. Another person can't tolerate that intimacy with that kind of uh, ambivalence going on. So... Well, you might be able to if you're both kind of ambivalent. <laughs> you know, it, it makes okay. it a little more tolerable. But, but you know, I, I think you mentioned like through the ages, there's there's been ambivalence. And it shows up in, you know, what we talked about on past show with Bethany Saltman around attachment styles. And it's out there in the lexicon a lot um, that some people are secure in their attachment, like they had a, a good relationship with their mother, with the parenting was consistent. The child knew if they cried, the mother would come, you know, in, in a certain amount of time, maybe. And it was pretty consistent. And their needs were met not only on the physical, but on the sort of emotional and relational the children felt felt like right they, at least my feelings were mirrored sometimes I was, yeah. it's not a hundred percent no yeah. parent ever does it a hundred percent but the child what is their experience is mommy and daddy they're relatively consistent whoever i'm living with the caretakers who are taking care of me they're relatively consistent i do get soothed by them mm-hmm. yeah. soothed is the word i can feel soothing from them there are the Children who are ambivalent or insecure attached with an ambivalent side. And that comes from a kind of parenting that's in- inconsistent. Like maybe one day the child cries and the mother's right there and all in. And then another day they cry and, and she's nowhere to be seen or found. And so it sets up in the child like, you know, people aren't consistent. I can't trust that someone's going to be there for me. So I become ambivalent about my relationships. And it becomes a kind of severe deprivation. It, it isn't just that, um, you know, mom isn't here this time. It's like mom isn't here and mom isn't here and mom isn't here. And, they're, and then, and then one time she's here and then there's 10 more <laughs> times when she's not here. And this isn't to demonize mothers. This is just standard attachment theory that's been around since the early 50s. Um, and Bethany Saltman's book, a Strange Situation, My Journey Through the Science of Attachment. 
Right. And and this came out last year and it was a number one science book rated as one of the top science books of 2020. But this theory about attachment, this insecure and secure attachment styles has been around since the late, since the early 50s with Mary Ainsworth. The mother, where well, this is not to demonize mothers, is to talk about the effect on childhood that you don't expect consistency in relationships, so you're ambivalent about them. Sometimes they can be okay. Many times they're not okay. I'm not going to be so enamored of relationships just because I'm supposed to be. And if a child's been cared for, say, physically, all their needs were met, you know, on the physical level, but not on the emotional and feeling felt level, then the ability to hold the two emotions, the ambivalent emotions, is very, very uncomfortable. It may not even be possible because it's just, it's so charged. Like, well, they the just rage, can't. the anger can be so severe. We don't know, right? Because this is pre verbal. A child is experiencing this before they even have the words, but they're not so young that they can't experience anger. Some people thought, oh, children don't experience anger until fourth year. That's nonsense. They can feel anger when they're being denied the bottle. They can be feel anger when their cries are not, you know, soothed away. So um, this ambivalence, ambivalent attachment style starts at an early age. And so then it comes and then it shows up all through adolescence, all through the 20s. And then you get married. And, of course, your attraction to a certain person is often based upon ambivalent feelings in the first place. And then they get into an ambivalent relationship. They don't know what it's like to be close. They don't have a feeling of closeness. No fault to anybody. Yeah. But but to be able to recognize it, there's something here that just doesn't seem right, you know, or I'm in this sort of dynamic tension all the time, or I'm feeling, you know, stressed out. Or I might recognize that I get into relationships and I break them off quickly, or I start something and I end it. Even if it's like a job, even coming into professional relationships, like I'll have a great professional relationship and then boom, I'll blow it up. And that's just sort of uh, recapitulating the trauma from childhood. Yeah. So so the what I'm describing is uh, pretty classic for borderline, which we spoke about in our last uh, show. It's a classic thing that borderline people with borderline will do is that they will get into they'll decide on a relationship but then undecide <laughs> and get out of it and get out of it in a big way and we talked about it's a personality disorder right it's mm -hmm. and again you have to have sympathy and understanding same thing like you would with narcissists narcissists who think they're great and act entitled you know you really have to feel for them because they're trying to fill up an emptiness in themselves. Most people don't know that when they see narcissists. They just get so reactive and disgusted, let's say, with a narcissist. But you, you really, the, the beauty is when you can see underneath the emptiness that they're, they're unable to face and to feel. And so they fill it with being, I'm the greatest, I'm so entitled. Well, with borderlines, borderline personality, you have to recognize they did not have stable, consistent um, attention child rearing theirs was a pendulum as well and it, it makes sense to grow up in a tentative fashion to to 
you know, admire and love somebody one day and the next day, you know, can't be, take them. You know, it's too much. And so we talked in the last show about this fear of abandonment that a borderline person would feel once they've found somebody that finally loves them and that they, they love. But then at the same time, they're going to fear being taken over because there's no me really here. So it's called engulfment. I'm going to be engulfed in this relationship. So it's, I love them one day and the next day I need to get away. And they're, they're engulfed. And at the minute they feel engulfed, they're also afraid that person is going to leave. So there's the fear of abandonment comes up. So it's this constant sort of battle. And if you don't really have the capacity to hold both, which the person with borderline has a very low capacity to do that, they're then reacting out of these pendulum swings. And obviously this would be, you know, couples ambivalence that is not healthy, not good, and needs some professional attention. Yeah. And and that's the beauty to work with borderline people who have never really felt the constancy of one person who can tolerate their rage and their fear and also their adoration and love, which would be a therapist who could sit there and, and handle both things and, and be prepared and ready for, you know, being taken off the pedestal one day and then put on the pedestal the next. Well, and then also helping them manage or be able to hold both states without, you know, as, as both being true on some level, like the truth is I'm committed to this person and there's the possibility they could leave. And can I hold both of those and not have to act or react out of either one? Right. So it's almost like an OCD thing. Nasima also would be kind of a sense of not being able to tolerate ambivalence, right? I'll do a compulsive behavior because I can't handle the weight of two competing thoughts. I have to wash my hands because, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to get germs. Um, and so I'll do this behavior and wipe away the fear that I'm, ha- that I'm going to get germs. So OCD can be an example of the inability to handle two thoughts or two feelings at once. And it seems like the anxiety that comes from having these two thoughts, the thought for an OCD, for a person with OCD might be, I want to go out and see my friends and or, but I've, I'm afraid I'll get sick. And these are two strong ideas, feelings, feelings, needs, desires. Right. And so what do I do to mitigate that? I have a certain ritual that I go through that makes me believe, and that's a little bit of magical thinking in there, right. makes me believe that this will keep me safe. Right. It's almost like hoarding. You know, hoarding is, is, must be OCD. I mean, they, they've labeled it under anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety, but it must be obsessed because there is a hoard. You're compelled to keep things, add more stuff. You can't decide. In order to balance out your emotional life. And often you'll see people who are suffering with hoarding disorder that they have a neutral, flat affect. There's almost a constant way of talking and being that doesn't even entertain fluctuations in mood and emotions. So that when they're actually confronted with throwing something out, then they're faced with this really difficult moment of decision-making. That, where these latent and hidden motions can come out. Exactly. The hoarding is 
sort of covering up that that thing, whatever it was that got it started, I think whatever happened. I, I mean, uh, we have to investigate this. There's so much under the idea of abandonment and insecure attachment that like we're talking about and ambivalence caused by, you know, inconsistent caretaking at an early age that, you know, we don't demonize any of these behaviors or any of these disorders or these people that are suffering from it. We're just noticing like, Ambivalence in general can be a very positive and good and growth-inducing thing. And when it becomes pathological, we're witnessing it in other people's behavior. Then it becomes a problem and we have to intervene and other help has to come in. Yeah, and when their behavior is preventing them from having a good life, a good enough life. Yeah, to feel connected to other people, they're not isolated, they're engaged in in life in some way and in their own self-expression. So this links a lot with trauma. When we look at attachment styles and attachment issues, it has a lot to do with developmental trauma. Um, you know, whether someone was attended to in a way they needed to right. in a consistent way sets up a certain trauma in the system. It can be shock, it can be shut down. When somebody's in either or thinking, it's either this or that. Yeah. Uh, it's positive or it's negative. Right. And I have to make a choice, yes or no. It's coming from a traumatized brain. And we see that as kind of an immature child brain because children also see see the world very much either or. Okay. They can't really developmentally in the brain hold both the, together. So if you're a grown-up, if you're an adult who's, who's constantly coming up against moments like this, either or, you're saying there's, there's potentially there's a problem here. It seems like there's no opportunity for ambivalence. Yeah. I, it's either or. And exactly. and that makes sense. Talk a little bit more about this. Uh, it it, it, makes, yeah, it, makes it speaks to... A lot of the dilemmas that people come into me, you know, come to see me, and I'm sure a lot of therapists with these dilemmas of, you know, I love my husband, but his family is terrible. Right. And, and I'm starting to see up, a lot of his family in him. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and vice versa, her, you know, uh, if I'm a husband and says, I love my wife, but I hate, you know, I don't like her family. And I'm starting to see some of their, her family traits in her. Exactly. Now what do I do? So with those dilemmas, I encourage people to really sit and be with the feeling of these two opposing forces. Okay. And the the movement in trauma therapy is to move from the black and white either or brain to a rainbow brain. And I get this from Nancy Napier. We spoke to her a few months we ago. We interviewed her here on our yeah, show. Yeah, and she talks about childhood trauma and how it shows up in your daily life. And it shows up in this kind of thinking. So from black and white to technicolor, right? That's the bridge we're trying to make. And that technicolor rainbow brain is both and. I love my husband and I don't, I like, don't his like his family. And it puts a very different feeling in the body when you can put these two things together because they're both actually true. Right. And it eases something. It says, you know what? Both can be true. And this is the hard thing with truth. We think truth is black and white. It is not. It is so multicolored. It's so many shades of gray. 
we can't say maybe one is more true, but but very often both things can be true. And if we can sit with the feeling of that, and there's a certain ease to that. So would um, that come after you've gone through a process of, of looking at both? I, I could see that it would be at the end. First, I have to be allowed to tolerate and to experience my my hate or my you know my my other feelings my darker feelings i i should first be allowed to have those and then the but then i can change the but to an end so i i love my wife and i don't like her family and i don't like the traits of her family that are showing up in her but i love my wife Maybe maybe you get two ands and a butt. How's that? (laughs) And no, it's all about and. And I send people home with that directive. When you're thinking something about one thing or you know, whatever it is, if you hear yourself say but, change it to and and just see what happens to your thoughts after that. Because you're no longer buying into an either or scenario, which is really terrifying and scary. In some situations to have to choose, I have to choose my wife or her family. You know, it's like, (laughs) wait a minute. Yes, right. Both can be true. It doesn't mean I have to be buddy-buddy with their family, you know. And maybe we can be in some dialogue about how these things are showing up that are frustrating me um, and how we can negotiate. You know, this is where negotiation can be really a wonderful tool. You know, the field of psychology um, began, let's say, exploring this idea of the unconscious. And I think what you're saying often that you can learn and get to know your unconscious when you are feeling two feelings at once. You are feeling ambivalent. Ambivalence is like a, a spur to get to know my deeper motivations and even maybe motivations that I don't even know about. That's what the unconscious is. You know, so you, one way to look at your unconscious is what do I avoid? That's one way to see what your unconscious might be holding. So you might, you know, have a feeling about your wife's family, and, and, but it might be tricking or triggering some unconscious thoughts and feelings, longstanding that have nothing to do with your wife's family. And so it's a great opportunity to really a much deeper knowledge of yourself. So this unconscious is still a really relevant thing in, in, in relationships and in psychology. And anybody who does couples work know that a lot of couples' issues are really buried in the unconscious and come out when they feel safe enough to actually say, you know, I don't like your family. <laughs> you know, share these feelings that they, they don't allow themselves to have or even to say to their partner but in a safe environment, get a chance to say. Right. And building that capacity to to feel safety and unsafety at the same time. Yeah. And that lets you really start to expand and become a little more three-dimensional in your life. Your life can become a little more technicolor. You have more choices to how to respond to what's happening in your life and your and the choices you have to make. So let's bring it uh, full circle here and talk about our country and what we're going through. What do you think of that? Let's talk about, with the last few minutes that we have, about but and. Like, what could be some ambivalence people are having this week um, as the change of guard has happened? And what do we want to say? I mean, we've tried to say throughout the show that having 
two contra- contradicting feelings at once is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Having multiple feelings at once is not a bad thing. We want to close out today talking about this ambivalence about what I'm feeling, what I'm feeling this week. Because I don't feel on firm ground. I don't know what's coming. I mean, I think a lot of people don't know what's coming. Certainly the pandemic in itself has created enough uncertainty to last a lifetime. But thrown on top of this is this change of guard, which is what we do. And thank God it happened in a nice transition in a a very peaceful way. But what are we going to say about our ambivalence for the next couple of weeks? So, Kevin, how can we sort of transform the the divisive or the ambivalent thoughts that people might be having about the country right now? We can do the but and, right? Okay. So, for instance, let's see. I'm angry about the result and I accept it instead of I'm angry at the result, but I accept it. I'm angry. Let's do the, the, let's replace but with end. I'm angry at the result and I accept it. I'm anxious about the result and I can still feel grounded and safe right here, right now. Good. I'm, I'm happy about the result and worried about the division in in our country. Yeah. I don't trust the current administration and I'm hopeful that will prevail. Right. So even if you're not ambivalent, I like the replacement of but with and. We use it in therapy in general sometimes as well. But I like that. And so, you know, I think thinking these things um, for the next few weeks will help people, help our countrymen, our citizens, fellow citizens, get through what's naturally a very rich emotional feeling period of time. So we're glad you joined us today. We talked a lot about ambivalence and having two feelings at once, and it makes sense for us to talk about it this time of year. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. You've been listening to The Positive Mind. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, and we would like to thank our Pacifica Radio affiliates who have been airing us recently, WBDY, WRIR, WRWK, KAOS, KXCR, KYGT. Thank you for your continued support. Also, our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. You can contact us at tffpp.org. That's the foundation for positive psychology.org with your questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. You can also find our podcast on most podcast platforms, The Positive Mind. See you next week, folks. (laughs) 